Some people sneak. Some people stomp. Others strut or skulk or swagger or skip their way through life or sachet, that's a sachet by the way, or stride or scurry or stumble along, people do that, or shuffle or even slide. How do you walk? See, walking is the physical activity that people participate in more than any other. Psychologists say that everyone has their own PMP, their own primary movement pattern. And the way you walk tells a lot about yourself. A stride conveys self-confidence. A shuffle belongs to a more timid person. A swagger indicates a big ego. Your walking style reveals your personality. Apparently, your gait is a gateway to your soul. And Paul would agree, for here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he describes how we ought to walk. And yet Paul's concern isn't our physical movements, it's our lifestyle. For Paul, our walk is how we live our lives. Verse 1 begins, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now recall, the believers in Thessalonica were wartime babies. That means they were born in the midst of persecution. While with them, Paul had instructed them on the lifestyle that they should be living. But now in tough times, he wanted to encourage them to continue in what they had learned. Former boxer Mike Tyson once said, Everybody has a plan until they get punched. <laughs> That's true of us. Oh, it's easy to walk with Jesus in supportive surroundings. But what happens when we get punched? When allegiance becomes costly. And this is why Paul urges and exhorts the Thessalonians to continue in God's commands. He says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. All Christians desperately want to know God's will for their life, don't you? Oh, we try to decipher it. Do I go to college, and if so, where? Who do I marry? What job do I take? Where do I live? What church do I attend? But the will of God is not, so, not such a great enigma. It's really quite straightforward. For here Paul sums it up, your sanctification. In other words, the will of God for you is to live a life reserved for Him. It's been said God is more concerned about who you are than what you do, and He is more concerned about what you do than where you do it. God's will is more about our character and about the moral choices that we make, 
our sanctification. Author C.S. Lewis once wrote, Every time you make a choice, you turn the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you slowly turn this central thing either into a heavenly or hellish creature, either a creature in harmony with God and with other creatures, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us is progressing to one state or the other. Here's what Lewis is saying to us. Whether you end up in heaven or in hell, you'll belong there. For all along the way in your life, you are preparing yourself by the choices that you make now. In a sense, you get to heaven or hell before you actually get there. By either becoming more heavenly or more hellish. And sanctification, as Paul puts it, is the process of becoming more heavenly. By making God-pleasing choices. And this is God's will for you. Rather than please this world, God wants you and I to please Jesus. It's how we walk. And sanctification doesn't just involve what we do at church or at work or in the market, in the public venues of life. No, it also involves what happens in the bedroom, in the private, intimate issues of life. It's not just what we do on the street. It's also what we do between the sheets. For according to verses 3 and 4, it's God's will that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now this term translated sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, from which we get our word porn or pornography. In Greek, it's a blanket term covering all forms of illicit sexual activity. Hooking up and shacking up and friends with benefits and homosexuality and polymorous relations and pornography and strip clubs and etc., etc., etc. Any sexual activity outside of marriage is pornea or sexual immorality. You see, in today's society, there's one guideline. It's safe sex. If it's safe, then it's supposed to be okay. But God's Word tells us to save sex. For God has designed sexual intimacy for one man and one woman in a lifelong marital relationship. And Paul elaborates in verse 5. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. The contemporary attitude towards sex is that it's nothing more than a physical act. 
like brushing your teeth or eating a pizza. People treat sex today like a form of relaxation, just a harmless pastime, like an exercise routine of no more consequence than riding a stationary bike. But this attitude doesn't explain the impact it has on our psyche and on the callousness it creates in our soul. I'll never forget a commercial from a few years back. It was heartbreaking. The camera was outside a sleazy hotel, sight of a one-night hookup. You only heard voices. The woman asks, so you have nothing to say? She obviously wants to believe that she means something to the man with whom she's just been intimate. But the man responds curtly, no. She begs for the slightest affirmation. You have nothing to say to me? He replies in a smirky tone, sorry. She snaps back, fine. The guy in the commercial doesn't value this woman or care for her as a person. She's just an object to him, a toy he's used to gratify himself. Like a paper towel, he's washed his hands of her and thrown her away now. See, Paul calls this taking advantage of or defrauding. Those are his terms. Sex apart from the lifelong commitment called marriage devalues and diminishes our self-worth. Contemporary wisdom might say sex is nothing more than a physical appetite, but that's not true. Your own heart tells you so. When the sex is over, you long to be loved by the person with whom you've been intimate. Allow yourself to be used over and over without insisting on the highest commitment in return. And it has a degrading effect on a person's psyche. You might be able to justify a promiscuous lifestyle mentally, but you can't escape its emotional damage. Our irresponsible attitudes towards sex have resulted in a broken society today littered with severe relational carnage. And note Paul's addendum here, verse 8. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given, his holy, given us his Holy Spirit. So don't say, oh, that's just Sandy's opinion. Don't say that. Paul says, you reject this decree, abstain from sexual immorality, and you are violating the very will of God. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. We're to walk not in lust, but in love. And it's not too strong of a statement to make. If love is not your instinctive response, if it's not the instinctive response of your heart, then you're not a Christian. Rabbits don't take hopping classes. Birds don't go to flight school. Fish don't need swimming lessons, even though they do travel in schools. My point is, some things come natural. And so it is with the, with the Christian and love. The Spirit of God births within us the love of God. A Christian doesn't have to be taught to love. It should come natural. We simply remain in God's love for us. And speaking of love, verse 10, And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, 
that you increase more and more. You see, the Thessalonians were known for their great love to the surrounding believers. They had been showing great love toward the neighboring churches. But love can enlarge. And this was Paul's desire for the Thessalonians, that they would abound in this love still more and more. And he urges them with practical advice in verse 11. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Now there are Christians and churches today who are always picking a fight. Theirs is a militant Christianity. And let me say, the Christian life is certainly full of battles. It is. The problem, though, is that we don't always accurately identify the real enemy. See, often our enemy is the lust in our own hearts. But what do we do? We set up straw men to pummel and to feel righteous about ourselves. We boycott corporate evils and we picket secular causes instead of pursuing, pursuing our own personal purity. Hey, when it comes to the outside world, Paul tells us to aspire to a quiet life. Mind your own business. Go to work. In other words, keep a low profile. Work hard. Pay your bills. This is a tremendous witness. Be attentive to the life that you live. Rather than always fight, let's be known for what we're for not just what we're against. This is the Christianity that will attract the world's attention. Sadly, in some circles, a quiet Christian is an oxymoron. We need to realize pushy Christians generally push people away. A better approach is a quiet but serious faithfulness. Well, in verse 13, Paul changes the subject of our walk in the world to our exit from this world. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now notice here, Paul refers to deceased believers, not as dead, but as those who have fallen asleep. You remember Jesus used this same idiom for death when he referenced Lazarus. In John 11, verse 11, he told his disciples, Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. We know from the text, of course, that Lazarus had been dead for four days. I mean, the old, body's, the old boy's body had already begun to decompose and begin to stink. When Jesus and Paul use this term sleep, they do so metaphorically. We're promised that our bodies will inevitably be resurrected. Thus, in a sense, they're still viable. Our life has merely been suspended. Jesus will see to it that these bodies function again. Thus, they sleep. But that's the body. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When our body dies, it goes to sleep, you might say, but our spirit goes directly into the presence of Jesus. This idea of soul sleep isn't biblical. The body sleeps, but not the soul. The spirit of the Christian who dies immediately enters the wonderful conscious presence of our Lord Jesus. 
It's our bodies that snooze, not our spirits. And it's the Christian's hope that one day our sleeping, decaying body will awake, that we'll be resurrected. You see, the Greek idea of immortal bliss was for the spirit to rid itself of the physical body, to be without a body. But Christianity promised something far better, that God intends more for us than just to be a bodiless spirit. No, the Lord has plans to redeem everything that sin has spoiled, which includes these mortal bodies. Paul continues in verse 14. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. See, it's the resurrection of Jesus. That's our guarantee of eternal life. Since Jesus rose again, we know that we'll be with him when he returns. And in verse 15, Paul describes the return, the second coming of Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now here Paul speaks of an event that is yet future. We call it the rapture. The Lord will descend from heaven accompanied by three sounds. In other words, we will hear Jesus before we actually see him. And Paul gives us the play-by-play of how this will happen. First, the Lord will let out a holler. Did you know he hollers? He's going to let out a holler. When my kids were little and they played out in the neighborhood, we had a yell that signaled they needed to come home. Kathy or I, we'd go out on the back porch and we'd yell, Hoo-doo-hoo! And Adam's kids from all over the neighborhood would come running back home. It was time to eat. Hoo-doo-hoo! Did you know that Jesus also has a yell that is going to signal to his kids that it's time to come home? Hoo-doo-hoo! I don't know if it'll be hootie-hoo, but... But he'll shout... Today, Jesus speaks to us in still small whispers, but in that day, he'll shout. Second noise we'll hear is an archangel. We're told the archangel pipes in. Maybe he shouts too, I don't know. And then the third sound we'll hear, we'll hear a trumpet blast. And then a miracle will occur. The bodies of all believers from all the ages, some nothing but ashes, Some nothing but scattered ashes will suddenly arise. A metamorphosis will take place. Graves will empty and the effects of death will be reversed. Corpses will be resurrected and made brand new. People often ask, why do the dead in Christ rise first? The answer is simple. They got six feet further to go. But that's not all. For verse 17 tells us, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this is where we get the term rapture. It's Latin for the the phrase here, caught up. In Latin, it's rapture. 
The Greek word is harpazo. It means to snatch away. Like a yo-yo hesitating at the end of a string. I, I wanted to bring my yo-yo this morning, but I forgot it. I just, but you could throw that yo-yo down and it hesitates on the end of the string. All of a sudden, you pop your hand back up and it boom, pops right back up into your hand. Like a yo-yo hesitating on the end of the string. Suddenly, the Lord will pop his wrist and up we'll go. One moment we're spinning about on the ground. The next moment we land firmly in the palm of God. What a day that'll be. On two occasions in Scripture, God got in a little rapture practice. Did you know this? God's been practicing for this moment. You remember Enoch? Genesis chapter 5 tells us Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. One day Enoch and God went for a walk and he never came back. He just vanished. God enjoyed his fellowship so much he snatched him up from the earth. Recall too when Philip baptized the Ethiopian. We're told in Acts 8 verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. But Philip was found at Azotus. Philip suddenly vanished. And reappeared some 35 miles away. I'm hoping the Lord will do that one day when I'm baptizing folks. Just catch me right up. Just practice a little rapture practice with me. It'd be great. Enoch and Philip were both examples of what will happen to an entire generation of Christians. And in the process of their transportation, they should expect a transformation. For 1 Corinthians 15 adds... That at the rapture, this corruptible body must put on incorruption, and this mortal body must put on immortality. God will suddenly beam us up. And in the process, He'll rearrange our molecular structure so that when we appear again, we'll be with the Lord, and we'll have a resurrected body just like Jesus. How cool would that be? Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest he says that the Greek term here, harpazo, or caught up, actually has five meanings. It can be defined as to catch away speedily, to seize by force, to claim for one's own self, to move to a new place, or to rescue from danger. And with the rapture of the church, all five meanings definitely apply. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, Paul says, Jesus will snatch us up in the twinkle of an eye. Did you know a twinkle's faster than a blink even? And a blink is one-tenth of a second. That means a twinkle's pretty fast. In a microsecond, Jesus will break us loose from the tight stranglehold of this world He'll receive us to himself as his bride. He'll relocate us to our heavenly home. And finally, he'll rescue his church from the wrath to come. The final judgments that God has ordained for this earth. And here's the most thrilling promise of all. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. This is the happy ending. I hope you're longing for I certainly am. That will be snatched from this earth to be forever with Jesus. Isn't this the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams? To be with our Lord and to never leave his side. Paul adds, therefore comfort one another 
with these words. We need to remind ourselves and each other that the Lord is coming back. Hang in there. Hold on there. We're surrounded now, but the cavalry's coming. It's all good when we're with Jesus. And then chapter 5. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now apparently the Thessalonians were well informed as to the indicators of the Lord's return. Recall Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Jesus had said, Of that day and hour no one knows. No, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. No one knows the day or hour of Jesus' return. But we can know, according to Paul here, the times and the seasons. For God has given us signs or indicators to let us know when we're getting close to the return of Jesus to the earth. He doesn't want us to get caught off guard. And one of the signs of the end times is given to us in verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now first, let's define this phrase, the day of the Lord. For here, day refers to more than just a 24-hour period. It is the epoch or the era of the Lord. Currently, we live in the day of man. Do you argue that point? I'm sure you don't. Today, mankind is having his way. Mankind is getting his say. But the day is coming when God is going to shut man up. And God is going to intervene in human affairs. God will have His say, and God will get His way. This day, or this time frame, begins with the full-scale global evacuation of Christians known as the rapture. And then God will punish this rebel planet once and for all. His creation will go into labor, in essence. The natural order will cramp up. Incredible catastrophes will upset the ecosystem. The earth will go into contractions and the kingdoms of man will crumble. Mother Nature will eventually give birth to the glorious kingdom of God. Jesus will ultimately reign and rule. But to get there, the old girl is going to have to go through a painful labor and delivery. And here's the cue that starts it all. When you hear peace and safety then sudden destruction. The day of the Lord is preceded by a false peace, a pseudo-shalom. There will be a calm before the storm. It always bothers me that Bible-believing Christians get excited whenever a new war breaks out in the Middle East. You know, we see it as a sure sign that the end is near. But it's not a war that we should be anticipating. It's a peace. A sinister shalom will precede the day of the Lord. When the nations believe that danger has passed, that's when sudden destruction breaks out in earnest. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. 
You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. The world will be shocked and rocked by the sudden disappearance of millions of believers. I'm sure it'll cause folks to remember our warnings. For the world, Jesus is coming as a thief in the night. But believers should be watching. We're on constant stakeout. We're aware of the signposts. We should be looking for Jesus. And then he says in verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Don't doze off spiritually. Stay alert. We need to live our lives on the edge of our seat. Once I had some chest pains one night. It scared me. I went to the doctor the next day. Turned out just to be a bad case of indigestion. But I'll never forget what this doctor told me. Now, now this was a college-educated, diploma-on-the-wall doctor. This man had degrees. And yet he told me, Oh, it's good that you came in today, Sandy. A lot of people ignore these signs and the next day wake up dead. (laughs) An educated man said to me, Wake up dead. But in a spiritual sense, everyone will wake up after they die. For when you pass into eternity, suddenly you'll get 20-20 insight. You'll see everything clearly, but by then it'll be too late. The idea is to wake up before you die, not afterwards. He says in verse 7, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, nothing good happens after midnight. I've said that to my teenagers a million trillion times, man. But that's Paul's point here. Folks with evil intent, they don't like to operate in the light of God's will. They seek the cover of darkness. They hide from God's light. They reject His truth. And we should be the opposite. But let us who are of the day be sober We should run to the light of God. We should enjoy His Word and covet it and desire it. Let's always be pure-hearted and sober-minded. Verse 8, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here we're told to strap on our protective gear or our armor. The Roman breastplate guarded the heart. The soldier's helmet shielded his mind. And here are the two areas where we need to seek spiritual protection. Choose wisely, friends, the things you desire. Put on that breastplate over your heart. And the thoughts that you think, strap on that helmet of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, literally whether we live or die, We should live together with Him. Now passages like verse 9 here convince me that Jesus will return for His church not after the great tribulation or at its midpoint, but prior to the Lord's coming judgment. For God did not appoint us to wrath. You know, Paul made a similar statement back in chapter 1 verse 10 where he introduced Jesus as He who delivers us from the wrath to come. God did not appoint us to wrath. And I think here it might be helpful for me to give you three basic reasons 
why I hold to a pre-tribulational rapture. That the church will go up before God's judgment will come down. Here's the first big reason. A pre-tribulational rapture is compatible with God's promises to His church. In Revelation 3 verse 10, Jesus promises the church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. They'll be kept from the hour of trial. The world is destined to be judged, but not the faithful church. It'll be kept from that trial. In addition, Revelation 13, 7 tells us that in the great tribulation, the Antichrist will be granted power to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And yet in Matthew 18, Jesus says the gates of hell will never prevail against or overcome his church. Thus, the true church can't be around in the great tribulation. The second reason I believe in a pre-trib rapture is that it's compatible with the doctrine of imminency. See, there are scores of Bible passages that encourage the church to be like a brand of batteries, ever ready. We need to be ever ready. Why? Because no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus can return at any time. Yet if you believe the rapture occurs at the end of the Great Tribulation, or even at its midpoint, you undermine this concept of imminence. Daniel 9 tells us when the Great Tribulation starts and when it finishes and what happens in the middle. Thus, if the rapture occurs at any point on that timeline, we can predict its placement. This would nullify the idea of imminency, that the Lord can return at any time. Only when the church occurs before God's final judgment begins can it happen at any time. And then the third reason why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture is that it's compatible with the biblical characteristics of Christ's return for His church, the second coming to the earth. There are passages in Scripture that promise Jesus will return during a time of peace. Other verses tell us He'll come in the midst of an enormous battle. Here in Thessalonians, it tells us he comes suddenly, unexpectedly, as a thief in the night, while Revelation 19 pictures him returning to the world, mobilized against him. The nations are ready to fight and resist the Lord. See, here's what I'm saying. In looking at the various references to the return of the Messiah, the second coming of Jesus, you realize they all can't fit into a single scenario. There are actually two second comings. Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom at the end of the great tribulation, but he comes to rapture his church before it begins pre-tribulational. Well, chapter 5 continues. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And here's one of my favorite verses. To sum it up, be nice to your pastor. <laughs> oh, may all the churches take to heart God's word to the Thessalonians. 
You need to recognize what your pastor does for you and the load that he carries. Don't assume he gets a lot of thanks. Trust me, he will appreciate your appreciation. And be at peace among yourselves. For here's how you can really bless your pastor. Get along with your fellow church members. <laughs> Cooperate and serve one another. And then he says in verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly or who are insubordinate. The Greek term is applied to a soldier who refuses to follow rank, who insists on marching to his own drumbeat. And too many folks in the body of Christ have a similar attitude. An unruly person has a hard time submitting to leadership. And the problem isn't the pastor. It's their own stubborn resistance to any and to all authority. The law, the police, the government, their parents, employer, the umpire at the softball game. They aren't content unless they're in control. Don't be like that. And if we keep all of this in the context of helping our pastor... When you see an unruly person, don't give, give them a listening ear or a sympathetic shoulder to cry on. That's like throwing gasoline on a brush fire. You're to warn them, Paul says. You're to remind them that they don't have all the information. Exhort the unruly person to trust their pastor and their elders. Encourage them to go along with their leaders and to go with, to them with their questions insists that they either straighten up or move on. We're not only supposed to warn the unruly, but we're to comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak and be patient with all. There should be no tolerance among us for insubordination, but weakness is another matter. You know, we all have our problems, and we need to patiently help each other unpack and resolve those problems. Paul gives us great advice in verse 15. He says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. A Christian should learn to fight evil, but we fight evil with good. Now, the machine gun commands. We're going to get some short bursts of some rapid instruction right here. Verse 16. Rejoice always. How do you do that? Learn to take your joy from Jesus. You can't always take your joy from circumstances, but we can always take our joy from Jesus. Pray without ceasing. Maintain a continual, open-ended conversation with God. Just never say amen. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Lots of bad stuff happens in our lives for which we can't be thankful. I'm not thankful for the death of a loved one or for a serious car accident. How can you be thankful for a fire or Georgia Bulldog loss? I mean, come on. But Paul doesn't say, for everything give thanks. He says, in everything give thanks. I can be thankful that God still loves me regardless of my circumstances. I can be thankful that I have spiritual blessings that can't be stolen. I can be thankful that God takes all things, even the bad things, and works them together for my good and for His glory. This is God's will for us. In everything, give thanks. 
Well, Paul continues his rapid-fire instruction here. He says in verse 19, Do not quench the Spirit. You know, there are various sins that we can commit against the Holy Spirit. To grieve the Spirit is to do what He forbids. But to quench the Spirit is to not do what He commands. And when we fail to move in faith and follow His will, we extinguish the fires of momentum that He wants to stir up. And one way to quench the Spirit is to prohibit or to neglect His gifts. Paul says, verse 20, Do not despise prophecies. Prophecy is a special spiritual gift of God's Spirit. You know, God usually communicates with us through His Word. But there are times when the Holy Spirit wants to speak through a spontaneous or an ecstatic ecstatic utterance from another believer. This is the gift of prophecy. And we shouldn't despise it. You know, it seems the Corinthians were the Pentecostals of the New Testament. They overemphasized and misused spiritual gifts. Whereas the Thessalonians were the Baptists. They just downplayed the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. Didn't want to have anything to do with it. And neither approach was biblical. Thessalonica was only 150 miles from Corinth. Perhaps they had heard of the Corinthians' abuses and they went in the opposite direction. They wanted nothing to do with spiritual gifts. Both approaches quench the Holy Spirit. Even today, it's hard to find a church that has a balanced approach to spiritual gifts. Either people are swinging from chandeliers or they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. But both attitudes quench the spirit. We need all the spiritual gifts and we need to learn to use them properly. Well, verse 21, test all things. Hold fast what is good. And here's how you keep maintain and keep the balance. Don't discourage prophecy, but don't believe all that you hear either. We should always use discernment. Just because someone says, thus saith the Lord, doesn't mean what follows is from Him. The exercise of prophecy is subject to human error. In prophecy, it's fallible people that become God's mouthpiece. And anytime humans get involved, there can be errors. The answer is to check it out. Is the message in harmony with God's Word? Is it in keeping with the nature of Jesus? Has it been confirmed by the counsel of otherwise Christians? If so, then take it to heart and act on it as the Lord leads. If not, then reject it. And then finally in verse 22, Paul commands, Abstain from every form of evil. Every form. (laughs) We all know evil comes In different shapes and styles, stay away from anything that's remotely evil, Paul says. And he closes with a benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus coming back, but let's be ready when he comes. And then verse 24 He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Did you hear about the guy who walked into the highbrow restaurant? Real fancy place. He wasn't wearing a necktie. So the maitre d' refused to seat him. Well, the man became livid. 
He stomped out to his car. He dra- draped his jumper cables around his neck. He re-entered the restaurant and shouted at the maitre d', Is this good enough? He said, Yeah, but don't you start anything. <laughs> You've heard that before, I know. It's a great joke. Understand, what God starts in you, He finishes. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. He saves us, He sanctifies us, and He keeps us blameless. There are no limits to God's love and mercy toward us. And then Paul closes, Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. The Phillips paraphrase puts it, Give a handshake all around among the brotherhood. Paul's point is when Christians meet, we should greet each other warmly and sincerely. Don't overestimate the power of a warm greeting. And then verse 27 ends the letter. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And there we have Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. But... Paul had to write them another letter. And so next week we'll tackle 2 Thessalonians. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Uh, So many things to think about and to meditate on. But Lord, the thing we come away with, certainly, is that we have a great hope ahead of us. And it could well be that we are the generation that never sees death that will be raptured and taken up and caught up to be with our Savior. Lord, help us all be ready for that moment to seek your will for our lives, which we know is our sanctification. Lord, help us to reserve our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our time and all of our efforts for you. Lord, help us realize that by the choices we make, We're becoming heavenly or hellish. And Lord, help us to become a little more heavenly every single day. Lord, work in our hearts. Lord, as we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, we love you so much, Lord. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.